Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of It's About Us. I am your host, Rush Darwish, and I hope everyone is doing well. I hope you're enjoying your summer. Uh, but I want to open up this edition of It's About Us by saying this, is that, yes, we should enjoy our summer, especially if you live in Chicago, uh, state of Illinois. Overall, it's, it's cold, and you want to get out, and you want to enjoy yourself. Uh, we earned it. But I want to go back to a very important topic that was – uh, that took over our lives for months. And if you noticed in the last three, four weeks, uh, the issue of the coronavirus pandemic, it kind of took a, a backseat, took a backseat to uh, another pandemic that we're dealing with in this country, and that's called racism. And that's, of course, something we will continue to address here on our program, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. But I do want everyone to know that, um, and I've always told this to people, who would question COVID-19. I've heard people say that it's a hoax. Government is making it up. Or from a medical standpoint that it's it's not that dangerous. Uh, It's like having the cold. And more people die of the flu. They downplay it. They don't take it serious. And my response is, you know, you never really know. You never truly know how dangerous COVID-19 is until... Uh, you are personally affected by it. And in the last uh, couple of weeks, you know, I've had close friends and family members uh, get, uh, get COVID-19. They tested positive for it. So now I have an intimate experience with uh, speaking to them on a regular basis. And COVID-19 is exactly as they said it was. And that what makes it so dangerous is that I have uh, family members who currently have it, that have zero symptoms. They don't even know they have it. They have no temperature. uh, Nothing is really bothering them. But then you have uh, the extreme other side, where we have uh, some family members who are really rocked by COVID-19, hospitalized, and are trying to get it under control. Nothing severe to the point where, uh, you know, not to that point, but, but it's severe enough where doctors are having to monitor it. And uh, that's why I think I'm not the type of person that wants to do a program to try and just scare people. But I will say that we, we must, we must take COVID-19 serious. Forget about the political and government aspect. We've been talking about that for the last two months. I can, of course, rag on Donald Trump all day. This isn't about Donald Trump. It's not about how good job or bad job our political officials are doing. What I will tell everyone, for whatever it's worth, is that even though in the state of Illinois we're seeing the numbers decrease, I am here to tell you that COVID-19 is still, unfortunately, playing a major impact in this state and all over the country. Cases are up nationwide, and I can tell you that so as long as people are going out, making contact with people, I think there's a lot of people who simply aren't taking care or aren't taking this virus seriously, especially in the last couple of weeks where it started to warm up. You know, we see people, of course, at protest. When I'm now driving or I go out for a run by myself, I see more people at picnics and at gatherings. It seems like we, we've collectively, as a society, 
have put our guard down when it comes to COVID-19. I will tell you that it is dangerous. And um, again, for whatever it's worth, this little podcast called It's About Us, I would still at all costs practice social distancing, go out only if you have to. And if you are surrounded by anyone that may look sick, has a temperature, if you were in contact with that person, even even if you don't know they have COVID-19 or not, I would get tested immediately. Heck, I got tested a couple days ago. I'm waiting for the results. It's a scary, scary virus. It's unpredictable. And I think that's why we have to take this serious. One, it's unpredictable. Two, we have no vaccine. Three, when I talk to doctors, they don't have, and this is no disrespect to the medical field, they don't have a lot to offer. I talk to doctors, they say, you know, you just got to go home and quarantine. No medication. Take a Tylenol. And that's what makes COVID-19 so dangerous. And speaking of dangerous, the saga continues. For the past uh, two weeks, the country has risen after the death of George Floyd. The term Black Lives Matter has, has been out. And it's people have been screaming it for several years now. But I'm proud to say that now Black Lives Matter is a talking point. It is a battle cry that now resonates with all Americans. It doesn't mean that you agree or disagree. That's, that's up for discussion still. But everyone knows what Black Lives Matter means. And it means equality. It means police accountability. It means equal rights. And I think that's powerful. And I congratulate all the organizers and all the people who are out protesting, all the activists right there that are fighting. Most of the activists have been fighting for far too long, not just what we're seeing on TV. And we're seeing now politicians uh, weigh in. Finally, we're seeing impactful legislation that's coming through Washington, D.C. We still have a long way to go. But something happened this past weekend in Atlanta. A gentleman by the name of Richard Brooks, 27 years old, and again, it's a situation where it was well-documented. Richard was uh, sleeping at a, in a Wendy's parking lot drive through He was blocking the way, and the Wendy's employees did what any other employee would do. They called the police. And uh, we're going to show you the footage. And what you will see is something that comes across as very normal, standard operation, if you will. And suddenly things took a terrible turn. And I want to take a look at this footage. This is, um, again, graphic, nowhere near, with all due respect, as graphic as, uh, as George Floyd's death, but nonetheless very graphic in terms of what the result was, which was death. This is uh, Richard Brooks. And I'm going to show you this footage again. This is in Atlanta. Um, it's uh, at a Wendy's parking lot. And I want to like pick up as to where we're at here. This is what you're seeing is, uh, again, what I call police standard procedure. Um, they spoke with him. Everything was very calm. And Richard Brooks, 27 years old, father of three. They were having what I call a normal conversation. They did do a sobriety test. Uh, he failed it. And that's when things went terribly wrong. I think Richard Brooks was surprised by this. He was shocked by this. And that's, there we go. That's when things went 
unbelievably wrong. And this is where the law, this is where interpretation comes in, um, where everybody can have a discussion, if you will. Uh, Rashard Brooks now is struggling with the police. There's a taser that gets loose. Uh, Rashard now is rustling with the police officers, and he is winning the battle. They cannot contain him. The cops cannot contain him. He now is able to uh, rustle his way back up, and he manages to take uh, a taser along with him. And there he, he, as you can see, tries to aim it at the police officer, and this is where it gets deadly. Take a, a close look. Um, goodness, oh, God. And then there you go. Um, sadly, you know, we are watching these, these horrific scenes uh, unfold. Uh, thanks to technology, we're able to witness, and of course here this is uh, one of the angles that's coming from uh, a, a, cam a camera uh, from the cop. But you're gonna end up, it's going to end up going to another shot, but we're showing you the different angles of what happened, of how uh, this unfolded. This is, again, Richard Brooks, and now the aftermath, they're just talking about uh, what happened. And it was, it's just a horrific scene. Now, again, I want to have this discussion because I think it, it, the time has come to be honest and be candid because this is what It's About Us is all about. If you really break it down, it's, it's again, we have a situation where he's sleeping, cops come, perform a DUI, Richard Brooks uh, is under the influence after doing the breathalyzer, but things take a horrible turn when he makes the fatal decision to fight the cops, resist arrest, rustle them, take a weapon. Again, it's, it's not a weapon that would, uh, I would say, a weapon that would be a threat to the public, but that's open to, to a debate, to a discussion. And I think when it's all said and done, everyone will look at it in a different way. But this is how I see it. And yes, it does come down to race. I have seen countless situations, footage that surfaces on social media where cops arrest, no, not a black or brown man, when they arrest a white man. And I've seen too many times where, for whatever situation, the white person is trying to evade arrest, but it doesn't end in death. It leads into a chase. Um, it leads into a situation that doesn't lead to a police officer pulling out their gun and shooting somebody as they're running away. So yes, I want to be, I want to be very clear here. What you just watched, the Rayshard Brooks uh, murder, which I know not everybody will see it as a murder, versus George Floyd, they are different to some degree. We've seen the George Floyd murder countless times, and that to me is clear cut, clear as day, the officer uh, suffocating him, knee to the neck for eight minutes, over eight minutes, uh, no weapon, no resistance from George Floyd, and people pleading to the officer to please let go, chose not to, that's murder. The way I see this is that we, as a society and government, have got to make that decision. We have to have a law that clearly separates a person as a threat versus somebody that is running from the cops, which, again, we know is illegal. Evading arrest is illegal. But that very moment, that detail is very important. 
Does Rayshard Brooks deserve to die because he decided to run from the cops? And after watching the footage, I know we played some of it. And I could assure you, and I think, again, it's very sufficient. The evidence is there. Uh, Brooks was not a threat to anyone. He was drunk. He wanted to go home. And he got nervous. And that was the response. It was a horrible decision by Rayshard Brooks, but it shouldn't have cost him his life. It shouldn't have. And that's where lawmakers have to make that decision. What constitutes deadly force? And it is technical. And it is complicated. And I will tell you something that is going to surprise you. And some people may get upset. But if we go by what we call police procedure, I think it's going to be very difficult to convict this police officer. Clearly, he resisted arrest. Clearly, he took a weapon. And clearly, you will see in the video that even though he was running for his life, he did turn around and aim the taser at the police officer. Was he a threat? I say he's not. Most people say he's not. And I do believe that if this was a situation with a Caucasian, I firmly believe that officer would not be pulling the trigger. And that's why we have Black Lives Matter. And that's why we need to have our law officials on a federal level make that decision. What constitutes deadly force? And make sure that applies to everyone. So, here in Chicago, we got all types of trouble, all types of problems. Uh, And I will say that Lori Lightfoot inherited unbelievable situations. Nobody saw COVID-19 coming. Nobody saw a George Floyd murder that was going to rock the city and lead to millions of dollars of vandalism. Already, the biggest challenge that... Mayor Lightfoot was going to face was, how do you balance the budget? And that's a question that, um, that was a big concern for many people. How are you going to solve it? And it just got so much more complicated because right now we're in such a deep hole. We were already $700 million into the hole, and now it's projected to be even more starting in 2021. So this is when things become complicated now more than ever. But that's why we bring in our good friend, Paul Vallis, who ran for mayor. He has so many job titles that I don't want to lose count, but he ran for mayor, president of the school board, and he's done a whole lot more, and he joins us right here on It's About Us. Paul, welcome to the program. How's everything going? Fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, and we're going to get right into it. The city was already uh, $700 million into the hole. And now we're even more hundreds of millions of dollars into the hole because we're losing revenue with, you know, June, July, the hotels, so on and so forth. Um, How do you assess this crisis and could Mayor Lightfoot get herself out of it? Um, Good question. As you know, in in, uh, early April, I I did an op-ed piece in the Tribune where I basically said that the city really needed to prepare a, uh, a for a, to have a contingency plan because we're facing I refer to it as a cold red type financial emergency um, and and you know I basically had said obviously with the shutting down of the economy that you know that, that the city could be facing a significant loss in revenue and as you know at, at the time I actually got kind of backslapped on it so to speak but uh, but the net effect is the city 
by the mayor's own projections is going to be over $700 million short of revenue uh, that they projected in the original budget. And of, of course, that's happening at a time when city expenses for COVID-related uh, COVID related, uh, uh, expenditures is uh, skyrocketing. Now, I, I think what she's, she's banking on is Trump. I mean, she's assuming, she's hoping that they're, are, they're gonna be able to get all their additional costs, uh, all the, their COVID-related costs covered by the federal government, by the CARE Act, by and the additional acts that will follow, and in, and then secondly, that in this next relief bill, if there is a next relief bill, uh, that that relief bill will replace all the lost revenues, which is a bit of a stretch because as as you know, the Republican leadership are are kind of balking at replacing the revenue losses of like big cities and states that have pension issues and that I have long time obligations. So, so the idea here is that uh, I think what they'll pass will be a little more contained, but clearly there's a push to get the revenues replaced. Even if that happens, if I can just finish this, the city is still facing a $1 billion structural deficit next year that they were projecting mm. before uh, the pandemic. Okay, so, so yeah. let's let's get into this here because we're hearing yeah. it all the time, especially the last two weeks. When a major catastrophe like George Floyd's murder happens, uh, we have a lot of people protesting in the street using the term "defund the police," and I think a lot of people right now, a lot of activists, concerned citizens, will say, "Well, you know what? If we got to take some money out of the budget to help balance it, let's go and let's take that money from the Chicago police force." Your thoughts on that? Is that sure. a good route for us to take some money out of to help, I guess, to some degree, be the starting point to balance the budget? Well, look, you know, what I've said is the following. First of all, the police budget, the city budget is uh, almost $11 billion, about 10 and a half. And, and the city, bu and the, I mean, the, the city budget, the city budget, that's the municipal, that, that's the city budget. That's not the airports, the schools, 7.7 billion, the parks. That's the city budget. The city controls all those other budgets, but that's the city budget. Police is about 1.76 billion of that. And then of course, fire, I think is over 700 million. So, so between police and fire, they're about 24, 25% of the budget. Uh, the point that I wanna make is technically the city has been defunding the, the police over the years. Let me tell you how they do it. They do it by not filling vacancies. In fact, at one point, I think er, early in Rahm's first term, he acknowledged that there were like close to 2000 vacancies that they weren't filling and he just eliminated it from the budget. So the police department routinely doesn't fill off its vacancies. That's how they balance their budget every year. They basically balance it through attrition. And, uh, and, uh, and, but then what happens is when, when there's a spike in crime, they then deploy those police on 12-hour shifts with no days off, paying them overtime. In fact, there are some years, there was one year where the overtime budget was 11 12% of the total budget. So at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, they have been playing games on the funding side and in certain respects, misleading the public as to what they're actually spending on police. Second point I want to make is the police and fire are going to take a hit anyway, because you're not going to make up for $700 million in lost revenues this year or a billion dollars in, in, uh, in a projected structural deficit next year without by segregating or separating or protecting 25% of your budget, which is police and fire. Okay. So at the end of the day, the end of the day, the, you're probably going to see cutbacks. Paul Vallis joins us uh, here on It's About Us. This might be a tough question, 
But when I followed you on the campaign trail, one of the things that really struck me was this Paul guy, he's a numbers guy. No, I, I don't know. And there's no candidate clearly that can crunch numbers uh, better than this guy, Paul Vallis. So uh, at any point, have the Lightfoot camp or has anybody approached you uh, to help can, a free consultation regarding um, how to balance the budget this year and for next year? Would you be willing to help? No, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm always willing to help. And, and early on in the campaign, I was invited to participate in the transition team. And I actually made a series of recommendations. For example, where we continue to divert $750 million in money of tax increment financing money. And, uh, and uh, so I talked about the need to get a handle on that diversion. And for that matter, even looking at... Uh, uh, what we could do to raise money now uh, on prospective uh, revenues that will come available when the current TIFs expire. You can issue bonds, amortize the interest, and, and so that you're paying off the bonds when new revenues are freed up. And that way the city could raise money for a lot of their capital expenses. And I made a whole series of recommendations, of course. You know, in March, I talked about the need to free or, or freeze or defer uh, salary increases and to do a number of things on the expenditure side to get control over the revenues. Or, or, or let me point out this too, you know, the schools, while all local governments are going to get hit, the state has kind of protected school funding. The schools are still pretty reliant on property taxes, which is a stable revenue source, although there's going to be large numbers of tax delinquencies uh, uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, but also the schools are getting about 230, $240 million in relief money, and they may get more uh, if there's a second relief bill. But yet the city is still subsidizing the schools, even though they've been technically closed for almost four months. Uh, it'll push in five months. They're still subsidizing the schools to the tune of about $650 million. Okay. So there's a lot of things. There, there are things out there. There are options out there worth looking at none of them are easy options no none of them are politically free but the bottom line is you have to have a plan because you're in a financial meltdown okay and it's uh, and let me just preface by saying that it's always easier said than done um mm -hmm. to say what would you do but i've got to ask the question um what would you do at this point and it's never easy to analyze what a current mayor is doing but just give me the main point that what do you think you would do that would be different and more effective than what we're seeing right now? Well, let me just say this. Uh, what I would do, and, I, and I'm going to continue to post things. Uh, I, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a plan to really offer, if you really want a progressive agenda that gets at the root causes of what's happening in inner city communities, well, uh, I'm going to give people 12 things to think about that are not dependent on Trump or not dependent on the state, or for that matter, not dependent on raising taxes. And I'm going to be very specific with that regard. But, but, you know, there's not enough time to get, into the, to get into a deep discussion. So let me just say this. Number one, the city has got to look at all the budgets. This, the city's budget, the city doesn't control an $11 billion budget. They control a $21 billion budget. So you've got to look at uh, uh, the enterprise funds, the airports. You've got to look at the parkers. You have to look at the schools with their $7.7 .7 billion budget. And, and, you know, in New York, for example, the school budget is really – determined by the mayor. The mayor prioritizes. You know, de Blasio, whether you hate him or love him or whatever, has, has actually, is actually trying to, to tackle their deficit problems by looking at things holistically. So I think you've got to look at the budget comprehensively. 
And if you do it, it gives you a little more flexibility. That's number one. Number two, you've got to look at the diversion of TIF money, $750 million in property taxes, $750 million. And you've got to look at how some of that money could be pulled back or what you could do to like issue bonds, amortize the interest. You can take advantage of the TIF windfalls that will come when the TIFs expire some years down the road. You can take advantage of them now to help deal with the city's existing emergencies. Number three, you've got to get control of expenditures. And, and look, I'm not, look, public employee jobs are a lot more secure than private sector jobs. I mean, the unemployment rate we're saying, seeing is not on the public employee side. So deferring, and I'm not saying canceling or pulling back, but deferring salary increases and cost of living increases and things like that, it might be warranted for six months or nine months until you can get a handle on the situation and see what the state is going to uh, provide you in return. So the bottom line is that there are four or five things that, that you can do to begin to get a handle on the situation while pursuing pursuing more money from the federal government. And look, if anybody thinks casinos going to rescue us, well, you know, I mean, the mayor's betting on Trump to replace all the revenue and casinos to fund pensions. Well, Trump and casinos, there's a certain irony in that, isn't there? It just has, ask yeah. Atlantic City. Yeah. And, and, line, and Paul, not- I wanted to ask you about the progressives. I mean, they're the ones who are pushing uh, progressives, pushing a more aggressive agenda when it comes to police defunding, uh, when it comes to just various ways of how to spend our money. Are, are they hurting or helping um, the budget outlook for the city of Chicago? Well, you know, it, clearly uh, the community is polarizing. You know, and rather than getting it to agendas, what I have said is uh, the root cause of our problems in this city is our failure to invest in our poorest communities. And I, I look, I grew up in Roseland, Sherwin Williams, the steel mills. Those sites haven't been cleaned up in 40 to 50 years. I mean, lack of quality schools, lack of quality school choices, pollution, you can go through a list. So the disinvestment in large areas of the city on the south and west side have created those type of conditions. You know, the TIF money that's being diverted, and you know, 80, 90% of that development, those investments are occurring in 10% of the wards. Maybe, you know, five, maybe five wards tops are, are really getting the bulk of that investment. So at the end of the day, you've got to have an agenda for the community because the, the cops are what happens at the end when, when there's, that's exactly there's right. poverty. There's generational poverty yeah. and there's unemployment and there's and in the Rosen area where maybe half the men are in some phase of the criminal justice system. I mean, what do you do? There is no hope. And those are individuals who can be exploited. So the bottom line is you have to have a progressive agenda, a, an agenda that that changes that dynamic in those communities. And I, I believe there are things that you can do, uh, uh, you know, even in the current financial constraints to to begin to advance the type of. Uh, in, uh, investment initiatives that can transform the community. And I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And in the next week or so, I'm going to articulate this. All right, Paul. So you're going to have some uh, content on your LinkedIn page for people to check that out. You said 12 steps? Yeah, actually 13. 13. Yeah. I was off one. Forgive me. So I'm trying to maybe get it to 15 or 12. No, no, but and, and I'd be more than happy to come back on to talk about them with, maybe in the next week. Or so. Anytime, Paul, because I think uh, it's important for at least our program and for the city of Chicago, for the residents to get ready 
I think 2021 is going to be an ugly year when it comes to uh, making some really hard choices. We're going to see some cuts. I think we're going to see the aftermath of what we are seeing now in the last three months. You will see the aftermath probably sometime a year from now uh, of all the money that we've spent. Just say one thing. Do not underestimate the the tension uh, and the turmoil that is really a product of this quarantine. Because let's face it. By stifling the economy, by you know people confined to, to barracks, so to speak. I, I mean, what's happening is everybody's suffering to a degree. Clearly, there is a direct correlation between your income and the degree to which you're suffering, but it is impacting everybody. And I think there's a there's an anger and a a pent a pent up frustration. So and, and so the damage is going to be lasting. First of all, the damage is going to be lasting financially. The damage the the damage is going to be uh, long term social emotionally. But let me yeah. tell you, the damage is also going to be done. The, the, it, there's also severe damage being done educationally, because a, as the Tribune pointed out, there hasn't been any sort of real comprehensive, constructive online learning going on. So you have children who have now been literally out of school for four months and mental atrophy took in what uh, uh, um, uh, takes place. When I was in New Orleans, when I went to New Orleans a year after Katrina to reopen the schools and I had students returning after being out of school almost a year, they didn't come to school one year behind. They came to school three and four years behind. Wow. And with social, emotional issues, with mental health issues that were potentially devastating. So this is a very dangerous situation and we're gonna be living with the consequences of our, our, our misguided policies and our misguided actions for a generation. Paul, you're officially a friend of the show. You have dropped serious knowledge on our program. We needed it. And uh, we appreciate you coming on and, and thank you for everything that you do. Good health to you and all all your listeners. Thank you so much. That was Paul Vallis joining us right here on It's About Us. And I think he brings uh, some interesting uh, perspectives without question. And um, with all due respect, I believe he gets it. This is going to be tough on Lori Lightfoot. I'm going to tell you that right now. um, There's always the glory of winning a big election and to make history. Remember, uh, Barack Obama dealt with it as well, that glory being the first of a, of a kind to win. Um, but quickly, the, the honeymoon ends much quicker than you want it to. And I know that Lori Lightfoot, it's not like she ran for mayor for the glory, but uh, there are some serious challenges ahead. Um, she inherits massive historical problems that even prior to um, the pandemic, prior to the George Floyd murder, it just adds more to it. And speaking of adding more to it, uh, the time has come to bring in uh, our good friend Bentley Patterson. He joins us every time we do this show. It's always unpredictable where he will be, but when he comes on, uh, we will always go to him, and there he is, the one and only in front. Now, first of all, are the athletes foot are, are they paying you for this? Or I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. Did, did did I like? Am I trying to promote somebody or something? Look, you know, seven awesome locations. Seven awesome locations, or is it eight? Listen, we don't need to get into the locations. All I know is that uh, the athletes foot does not sponsor or endorse. It's about us. But I'm glad that um, I'm glad that you're in front of the shop, and I I hope you bought a pair of Air Jordans while you were there. I will be picking up a pair of shoes while here. I've got to start working on my Alfred Hitchcock silhouette. So I got to share. I got to share a story with everyone about Bentley, which was really cool. He had he had no idea 
what he did. I think it was about seven, eight years ago for a charity event. Bentley came up to me after the show we were doing prior to we did It's About Us. We did a show way back. And he gives me a box with his retro Air Jordan 1s. These were the original Air Jordans. He gave it to me to auction off at the charity. And in exchange, I told him that he could always come on the radio show. It's about us. He'll always have a guest spot. That's all. I I have nothing to offer. I don't have money. I I just said, hey, yeah, you can come on the show. Hey, following Paul Vallis, man. What, yeah, that is that is awesome. I, I nothing but respect yeah, for that. He's smart. Man. That is incredible. Yeah, he's got deep brains, no doubt about it. All right, so uh, we open the show talking about uh, Richard Brooks, yeah. and uh, I open by saying clearly, even though, look, when, I'm I'm a type person, Bentley, and I think you're like this too. I know that you have to be, and I'm gonna put bunny ears, politically correct. I get that. Yeah. But sometimes you just have to analyze things for what they're worth and what you see. And I don't think it's cut and dry like the George Floyd murder. I think this is a lot different. Um, and I want your take on it. What did you see when you watched the footage? No, I, I, I totally agree with you. It was totally different. I mean, we're, 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 the pendulum's almost going too far here. And, and, you know, we've got to let police do their job. And, and I don't believe in this movement to abolish the police. Um, and, and the call for that, I think that is, that is totally wrong. I think that's only asking for trouble. Um, but here you had a guy who, oh, thank you. I dropped my glasses, man. And somebody was kind enough to tell me that I dropped them. Thank you. Appreciate that. Anyway, keeping it it real um, on it's about us. All right. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is real life, just walking around the mall, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, going back to that, what happened that night was a tragedy again. Was this excess of force used? I, I think absolutely. I, and, and I agree with you totally that I think if that guy's skin tone was different, the reaction would have been different as well. Only because, um, I've, you know, only because I've watched it too many times. Right. But they had his information. They had everything about him, right? They had his car. They had his ID. They knew who he was. They knew where he lived. They, they probably by that point in time knew his record. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately the outcome of this was all too familiar. And that's where the real problem lies, is that before you cannot shoot a man in the back when he's running away from you. Now, you, hold on you, now, you, Bentley. People are going to say that he did point the taser. He did turn around. He did. he did. This is where, again, it's open for interpretation. He did. We have to be fair. He did point the taser towards the police officer. And I think, again, the law, the law, this is where the law must come in. I, I, the, the, the law has to cover the use of, of lethal force, right? When do they have the right to pull that trigger? Now, did that man point a gun at him that was a taser? Yes. Would that taser kill you? No. Every police officer has been shot with a taser. They have to endure that training in order to be able to use that weapon. Exactly. Um, and, and, and so they know what it feels like. Yeah, 50,000 volts, yes, but with no amperage. You're not going to die from that. And, and chances are you're going to get hit in your protective vest anyway. And it's not, the charge isn't going to go through that. So, yeah. Did the guy point a taser at him? Yeah. Was it going to kill him? No. And and this guy was running away. He panicked. He did the wrong thing. He shouldn't have to pay for it with his life, Rush. Yeah. Let's, I mean, um, let's go to social media. And for people who are listening in and are in the comments section, we'd like to know your take. How do you compare this? Is this 
a straight up murder or is there open for interpretation for people who'd like to uh, weigh in, would like to read some of your messages uh, on the program right here on It's About Us. Yeah, I look at this and clearly there is, again, a misuse of force, but it's not the George Floyd murder. It, it just, it's not. The, there agree. was critical mistakes that were made on both parts. Um, we watched the video. What's crazy, You it, those body cams, it's crazy what, what we watched because everything was very cool, calm, collected, uh, the way that the police officer was communicating with Rayshard. It was like, he was cool. Yeah. Every, everybody was cool. And, and, and let's face it, too, that you framed it as he fell asleep. He passed out, dude. He was flat out right passed out in, in, in that scene. He then failed the sobriety tests. Um, you know, they gave him both the walking one and the breathalyzer. He failed both. Um, yeah. And, 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 and did he deserve to be taken prison? You bet. Uh, and, and locked up. He and, made and yeah, critical mistakes. Uh, Tamer says, Tamer here is uh, listening to the show. He says it's uh taser's not lethal gunshot lethal at the end of the day. It's not that a different deadly force used without justification resulting in the death of a black man. And I think that's what many people will interpret this, that this was race. Once again, played a big role. It's, I always like to be honest for whatever it's worth. But we have to sometimes use history for us to understand the present situation. And yes, we have seen it all too many times of the white guy that's struggling with the police officer, where it may lead into a police chase. They'll get him in a, in a couple of hours. They get him, you know, the next day. They got his car. It's like they're going to get him. But for whatever reason, the police officer, when it comes to a black man, they are more compelled to use deadly force right on the spot. I. I, I, I Thank That's you, Tamer. So wrong, and and it does happen. I love that uh, Tamer made a great point, and I totally agree with it. Steve made the comment in there too, uh, somewhere that you know, better to be judged by twelve instead of carried by six, which is a, a standard police. Yeah, Steve. Comment, Steve you know, say like, Steve oh. said most officers would take their chances with a jury of twelve versus a one-on-one encounter, and that's right. why. And here we go. I want to be clear. I'm not a lawyer. But when you watch the George Floyd murder, the way that can translate into court, it would not it would not shock me if somehow the police officer gets off gets off the hook. They, you know what? It would and not. My- it would not shock me. In which one? George Floyd, the murder. I'm, it would not shock yeah. me if the police officer gets off. No. If if that technique was trained, if if he was taught that technique. Then, then he is going to walk scot-free. They and, are going, what, and, what people don't know is that everything, and the thing is right now what we see is we see emotion. Everything that we're watching in the streets, what we're watching on TV, it's all emotion. But when it comes down to the juries, when it comes down to a court case, everything comes down to law. And if you break it down by law, was he doing his job? Did he follow procedures? And I think... I think depending on the type of jury you have, you never know. Yeah. It's it's not as not as clear cut as I know that the way we like to think it is. You know what I would like to find out? I would like to find out if that officer in Minnesota went through the IDF training. I, I know that I, it was mentioned, and I know that so many people want to bring up that angle. 
And I think for I'd, me, I'd the like way the, the, I'd like the, to find out if you went through it, the training, they, they could they could go ahead and, and expose that. But that's more what I call a sidebar issue. It is that that is not going to have any impact from a standpoint of when this goes to court. I just no, think I just think it makes. Any I just but if think that was the training yeah. he got. We hopefully the focus will come in on a nation that some of that training and the way that the Palestinian people are being treated in the streets over there is wrong as well. And and as as I mean, we've got over 90 percent of the people here saying that how he was treated, George Floyd was was absolutely wrong and it wasn't fact murder. Then let's see if 90 percent of that translates to people realizing that they're doing that to little kids in the streets of Palestine. And and I'd like to see that as well. Bentley, you know, we always appreciate when you come on the program. Um, My brother, I'm going to go see your yeah. real brother in here in a second because I am going to get some shoes here. But I, I will say this. My heart starts to beat a little bit fast when I think about both of these officers, the shooter from Atlanta, who I believe now they ruled it as a homicide, by the way. And, of it course, was. I don't know why the officer in Minnesota keeps slipping my mind, but both of these officers – Court of public opinion, they are downright guilty. But when you apply the law, I think I think there's a lot of gray areas. And I think if you if you think there's a if you think there is an uprise and a mass protest now, can you imagine if any of these officers get off the hook and don't serve jail time? And it's ruled as, well, they're just doing their job. It's gonna happen. You think, it's whoa, sad. whoa, 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 time out, Bentley. You're, predict, you're predicting right here on It's About Us that these officers are going to walk? Both of them. They're not going to yep. jail. They're not going to spend their – well, the one's already in jail, right? Right. Or did he, did he post bail? Was he able to – No, I don't, not that I know of. He had like a – it was a $400,000 bail. Good, good. And, and, and by I, the I, way, that wasn't – see, here's what's important. We all hear the saying there's court and then the court of public opinion. He was just like at one point either fired – or told to just stay home. He wasn't arrested and charged until the, the mass riot and protest. Yeah. I mean, if the, so days. think about that. Just That just gives you an idea of how this was almost seen as standard procedure, and it wasn't until the uproar did they say, well, we better go arrest this guy. Think about and that. Then, and then look what happened in Atlanta. That night, the officer was fired, and the next day, the police chief resigned. The I mean, mayor, bang, mayor bang. Bottoms of Atlanta, though, and this is going to sound bad, but, you know, Mayor Bottoms, Keisha Bottoms, I believe her name is. Yeah. Uh, the Atlanta mayor. She's also a, a vice president, presidential pick. She couldn't mess that up. I mean, yeah. she, she's a finalist, and you know that when that happened, she was like, uh-uh. She went right to the police chief, said, you're going to resign now. Uh, I'm just saying it's, poli it's politically motivated. I'm, I'm just saying who who's to say – that if it was a different mayor that wasn't politically motivated, that this police officer or the, the police chief uh, would have to resign immediately. Yeah. I also think she did it to avoid, um, you know, she thought maybe well, they, they, we arrest or we, we tell the chief to, to resign, that this would uh, result in less riots and, and, and the burning of the restaurant. But obviously we saw what happened to the Wendy's. Yeah, they torched the Wendy's. All right, so, Bentley. Yeah. Man, we appreciate you. Let's let's follow this, and let's, let's hope do. we have a good a good ending where justice is served. And and may we have a week where we don't have to talk about this, please. I really would like 
you know, that to happen. We all live in peace and harmony, brother. Well, uh, I hate to say this. So I'm going to have to get back to you on that, Bentley. All right. Man. Be all right. good. Take care. Be careful, my brother. Bye. Have a good day. What a show. We thank you all so much for coming on. Um, we thank you for listening. And um, I just want to remind everyone who listened to our program, again, please take COVID-19 seriously. I know that we're hearing a lot of feel-good stories of um, the cases dropping in the state of Illinois, but I assure you that if we do not practice social distancing, go out only when we have to, avoid public pace, uh public places and make sure to wear your mask at all time. I think it's so important, so important that uh, we be careful and take care of ourselves because COVID-19 is so dangerous. Thank you all so much. If you miss uh, portions of this program, uh, make sure to check us out on iTunes and Spotify.